There are three uh, very um, uh, distinguished speakers. Uh, we have three today. Frank uh, Milligan, who's the director of President uh, Lincoln's Cottage in Washington, D.C. Um, Frank is, um, has a Ph.D. in American and Canadian history. Uh, he formerly opened new museums in Canada and Nantucket. Uh, and is, uh, has a new book, book coming out called Civil War Washington, The Diary of Horatio Taft, to be published in 2010. He's been recently elected to the ASLH Council. Our second speaker is Marsha Mullen, who's a curator of the Hermitage, the home of President Andrew Jackson in Nashville, Tennessee. She's been with the Hermitage since 1986 and is a museum, has been a museum curator since 1976. She holds master's degrees from the University of Notre Dame in American Studies and from Texas Tech University in Museum Studies, as well as a BA in History from Indiana University. At the Hermitage, she supervises the Museum Services Division, which includes archaeology, collections, education, interpretation, and preservation. She was the team leader for the Hermitage's recent interpretation and visitor experience project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. She, she co-directed the Hermitage Mansion interior restoration project that, that restored the mansion from the, to the 1837 to 45 period. And finally, we have Robert Waltz, who's been the executive director of the Harry S. Truman Little White House State Historic Landmark since August 1999. He co-organized the Truman Legacy Symposium with Dr. Michael Devine of, Truman, of the Truman Library, and Dr. Robert Watson of Florida Atlantic University. He serves as executive director of the Key West Harry S. Truman Foundation as well. Prior experience includes being the founding director of the Key West Shipwreck Treasure Museum and the general manager of the Old Town Trolley Tours of Key West. He received his BA degree from Youngstown State University and has completed graduate studies at the University of Central Florida. He wrote The Legacy of the Little White House Presidents in Paradise and co-edited the National Security Legacy of Harry S. Truman and Harry S. Truman's Middle East Legacy. He has authored articles for the American Political Science Association in Florida Art and History and is a regular contributor to the Banner National Journal of the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Mr. Waltz is involved in heritage tourism, church, civic, and fraternal organizations in his community. Our session is more than a life story, expanding historic site interpretation to attract new audiences. As you have seen, uh, all of us are at presidential sites, and this was an initiative of the Presidential Sites Committee of ASLH. Uh, with that, I think we'll start with Marsha and let Frank uh, not, not get, he can calm down a little bit after that little scare, and we'll, we'll get Marsha up here first, uh, and then we'll go to Frank and then to Bob. So let me pull your presentation up. Uh, well, I had it up. Where'd it go? Let's see. Uh, okay. Well, okay. Let's swap then, and we'll find. <laughs> I've had enough. Enough. Uh, enough of that. Just right now. And uh, slideshow from beginning. There you go. Thank you, Eric. Good morning, everyone. 
Good morning, everyone. God, come on. Jeez. Been up since 5 o'clock. You guys, come on. No excuse for that. Uh, I'm going to try and dance a little bit, as uh, Eric suggested. And uh, unfortunately, a, a presentation with 30-some images uh, designed for today, uh, I'm going to be substituting about eight images that I think I gave at a London uh, conference a couple of months ago. But we'll, we'll get by it okay. Because it's really not what goes up there that's important. I think it's it's what we're doing at, at uh, President Lincoln's Cottage. And uh, earlier this morning, I was at a session. I know uh, David and maybe a couple others were at a session with J James Madison um, spoke at uh, on uh, a lynching in the Heartland. That book. He's the speaker tonight. And it was a uh, it was a great uh, uh, discussion. And he spoke uh, at length uh, about comfort history and how the need for public historians and academics to take Americans beyond their comfort level and really interpret uh, the truth as we know it today. And that really struck me uh, very pertinent to what we're doing at, at the cottage. Uh, and to give you some context, because we are public historians, I just tap this, Eric, is that all I do? Sure. There we go. Uh, just to set uh, the, the historical context for you, and I'll try and juggle these notes with, with what comes up on the screen, but uh, uh, we're located in Washington, D.C., just so you know. It's in the, basically the center of the city uh, in an area that's undergoing uh, some um, uh, change, uh, certainly uh, in the last few years. We raised $17 million to restore the cottage, uh, and we opened it to the public in February 2008. We're, we're private operation under the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And our mission from the start was to try and interpret Lincoln's ideas, and my mandate was very clear and wide open from the trust. Uh, you're free to do something different here if you choose. And uh, I think we have set out and accomplished uh, that in, in a uh, kind of, a, I think, a unique manner. The, uh, the actual setting, uh, what's really, I think, most interesting about this setting is that it is today what it was when Lincoln spent a quarter of his presidency. I think unlike Bob's site, um, I think you compare yours certainly to Camp David, um, ours is not a Camp David analogy. Lincoln didn't just pop out there on weekends. The whole family moved out there, lock, stock, and barrel, uh, for four, four to five months of the year, in 61, 62, and 63. Lincoln fell in love with the place. It certainly gave him something, and, and so we really interpret it now as a crossroads, uh, a crossroads between the popular uh, Lincoln myth and how we can interpret uh, the key issues that are important to his presidency and the ideas and ideals that uh, pervade today. I'm always leery of doing this because you know images should never be up for more than 20 seconds. Some of these might be up for a bit longer than that, so uh, bear with me on that. So the, the, the setting itself is fantastic. It's a, it is today a retirement home for 1,100 veterans. It was, when Lincoln was there, a retirement home for about 150 pretty rough and ready Irish and German-American veterans from the Mexican War. Lincoln lived right beside these guys uh, for long periods of time, often alone, because Mary, uh, with or without her kids, uh, did what many Washingtonians do and got the heck out of the city in the summertime. And so at, at those times uh, when the real key issues uh, were being worked through Congress and uh, with the military, Lincoln was alone. And he didn't particularly like being alone. So from, from this, let's see what comes up next. Uh, 
we set out to do the restoration. I had some great images uh, of that. But, but uh, what's important is we wanted to set uh, an experience that uh, would, in, in many ways, take visitors beyond the comfort level. And in order to do that, we decided that we would limit our, our tours. You could only see the cottage in a guided tour format. We would limit our numbers to 20 people. That means turning away people at the gate. And trust me, uh, for private operation right now, it's hard to turn away $12 tickets. But we do that. We do it. Uh, usually, if I'm over there, we'll add tours, and I'll take them on the half hour because it's, it's hard to turn away revenue. But the whole concept was one based on a conversation between an educator and the visitor in small numbers where everybody can sit down. I can guarantee you, if you are all standing right now listening to this presentation, uh, you might not be as attentive as you are right now. You're comfortable. You can listen to me. Uh, and so we set out to, to, to do that. And that, that itself was challenging because this building, uh, uh, the cottage itself, is, is all historic fabric. And so we, uh, we really need to plan very carefully. So we uh, built a, a visitor center where everybody starts. Everyone sort of gets a basic level of information on Lincoln. Uh, temporary exhibits, see what we got next. Uh, temporary, this is the atrium hall of the visitor center. Again, it's it's fairly small building because we only take so many people at a time. Now, we have done cocktail receptions in here for, you know, 150, so it does do a ser uh, serve uh, multi-purpose. Um, we, again, this was designed for another presentation, but it, it's pertinent here to point out that we do use uh, the visitor center also for educational activities. And uh, our, our goal here is to look at the decisions that Lincoln made as president that were difficult. And emancipation is one of them. Military history is another one. We actually won the AM award last year for this particular exhibit, which is an immersion program where you all would come in as a group and uh, take on the personalities of, cabinet, of, of, of a cabinet secretary. And you use you you plunge into these computers and you absorb the uh, historical information, the documents, and you come to the conversation ready to debate your point, why you believe and why you argued with Lincoln the way you did, based on your political or moral or ethical beliefs. Uh, so this was all setting up uh, the visit. We have temporary exhibit galleries, which really set the place and time. Uh, we did a number of surveys before we opened. We did. Uh, 300 surveys at four D.C. area sites, and we spoke with visitors, and we said, here's what we're thinking of doing. We want to talk about Lincoln's ideas and his process and progress towards race, his views on race and slavery. And what's interesting is the 19th century, these were two separate issues. Today, we kind of view them as one. But in the 19th century, it was possible to have a different view, to have uh, variations of a view on race or slavery. It's a uh, very complicated uh, issue, but we needed to synthesize it all down to an hour tour. Uh, those those uh, surveys were very instructive because a lot of people said, hey, that sounds kind of interesting, but you know what? I want to hear about Mary and the marriage. You know, was she really batty? Uh, I want to hear about Lincoln. Was he gay? You know, these were hot topics at the time when we did these. Um, Survey. So we had to incorporate, you know, giving the people a little bit of, of what they want, as, as we should do, but really taking them to where we really think they needed to be to really learn about Abraham Lincoln 
and his views on race and emancipation. I have no idea what's coming up next. So emancipation becomes uh, one of our, you know, maybe our central theme, if you like, and the tour is uh, uh, orchestrated towards a, a view of, of Lincoln's views uh, on race and emancipation. This gets me back to what we were talking about this morning, and I can't get that out of my mind, you know, this comfort level. When we, when we train our interpreters, uh, we really train. We are not an object-based uh, um, place at all. We have you know, wonderful grounds, and we talk about the setting here. That building, the large building in the background, is the original uh, soldier's uh, home, actually, the residence, part, part of that building. Uh, people are, are fascinated about Lincoln. You know, did he sleep in that bed? Did he sit in that chair? We don't have a lot of, of original furniture anyways. Uh, so we, and in a way, we were blessed with that, in my view. You know, we have some objects are coming back to us now, and, and uh, the interpreters kind of, by default, f fall back on those. But this was a, I viewed it sort of as, a, as an incubator. This, this building inside, and I apologize, I don't think I have any interior images of it. That's the cottage in the background. Uh, and visitors actually make their way over there. Once they cross that road, you're in the historical setting. Uh, and there, there it is from the south uh, south view. It looks a lot better now uh, than it does there. Um, but we had uh, uh, an opportunity where we could have a conversation of Lincoln's progress, his changing thoughts on race and emancipation. And, you know, that's what makes the guy, in our view, human. Uh, at the same time, we have thousands of visitors coming to us right from the mall where they've seen the great emancipator in that wonderful memorial and that's the view that they come to us with and now what you're going to tell me that he had an opinion that blacks were not equal to whites uh, how does this this isn't what I thought about Abraham Lincoln we really challenge people uh, to, to sort of think about Lincoln's ideas and put them in the context of the time so attracting new audiences well as we talked about this morning the author uh, of, of the book didn't want to put a lynching image on the front of his book because he was afraid people wouldn't buy the book. And maybe that would hold for us if our marketing was, you know, we said, come and learn about Lincoln's uh, quote-unquote racist views. Uh, that might just hurt our attendance. Uh, but there is a full story here. You know, the marriage, his family life, this place is a crossroads where he came for respite and contemplation. It's all part of his thinking. He may not have come out where he did come out with the Emancipation Proclamation if he had not been able to spend time here. Uh, and, and so we interpret that uh, as well. Oh, that's, that's the last image. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, enriching experience. And what we're finding is our visitors really don't mind being challenged. Uh, they don't mind hearing uh, that Lincoln, you know, warts and all. They don't mind hearing that... Lincoln's views as the war progressed and as he saw the, the valor of African Americans in combat changed his views on, on really important issues like colonization. You're telling me that Abraham Lincoln believed in emancipation, but really what he wanted was that every African American in the country would be shipped somewhere else to live because he really believed that it would be best for white and blacks to live apart. You're telling me that? Well, we do. And you get some very, you know, you get raised eyebrows. You get uncomfortable kind of shifting in the chairs, you know. I'm not sure I want my children to hear this story. Uh, it's the Lincoln story. 
So and uh, so we in our evaluations, you know, we're at last last time we checked, we're running eight in the mid 80s, uh, very favorable responses, and we're getting some great um, feedback on our website as well. Now. Uh, we all do at our sites get great responses, uh, but some of these testimonials are really, really powerful. You know, where we really have an idea, have an opportunity to get people to, to contemplate 19th century uh, politicians by being in a 19th century location. The only public building where Lincoln lived as president is this place. The White House is closed to the public, and it's changed so dramatically. It's irrelevant anyways in that, that respect, and the Springfield home is largely pre-presidential. So the sense of place is very powerful. He found a community here of veterans, his military guard, whom, whom he interacted with on a daily basis. The commute, the fact that this guy at the end of a, who worked every day of his presidency, every day, uh, and every day that he was in, in Washington, rather than just flopping down on a couch at the White House, which he could have done, or his bed, got on a horse, or in his carriage and rode through dark and dangerous streets to get back uh, to this place to lay his head down for a few hours to get up and ride back down again the next morning. Why? What was it that, that brought him back here? Uh, it was that opportunity to reflect, to read in this very library, uh, to meet with politicians, uh, friend and foe, behind closed doors, not in the spotlight of the White House, but here, where deals could be cut, views could be changed and exchanged. How am I doing for time, Eric? Uh, and so I haven't even really got to my notes here, but that's the that's sort of, you know the essence of of what we do at President Lincoln's Cottage, and it's it's really exciting. Uh, I've been in the business since 1978 when I began as a museum educator in Canada, and I've, I've worked with some wonderfully rich stories. Uh, but none has, has grabbed me and they grab our staff and, quite frankly, grab our visitors like this story. Uh, Lincoln is, if not, you know, the most important uh, character in American history. He's certainly right up there, and for good reason. He changed, the, he changed the dynamic of the war. He changed the conversation in the war uh, and, and single-handedly, in many ways, uh, brought along uh, a reluctant Congress along with him. But at the same time, his views were distinctly 19th century uh, and certainly not 20 or 21st century views on, on race. Uh, and and uh, that's a new story for many of our visitors who really come out here wanting to put a top hat on and sort of play Lincoln, you know, uh, the man who, uh, who, freed, who freed, freed the slaves. Lincoln himself was... was was quick in his own uh, life to to tell African Americans, "Get up off your knees! You don't thank me. You know I didn't do this for you. You did it for yourself." So it's a, it's a very complicated story. Emancipation. We end our um, our visit, and uh, you know I had images of showing you how our visitors sit and move through the building. We incorporated media into our tour at some risk. I, 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 uh, the National Trust is a pretty conservative organization when it comes to uh, the preservation of its buildings. Uh, but again, they gave us the, the green light, and we, and we bring in sound. Uh, two of our rooms have large flat-screen televisions where we use those great images from the 19th century to really bring people close to the story. It's all about the story. And that has worked, I think, really well for us, uh, at the risk of sort of disrupting that 19th century ambiance 
to bring in this kind of stuff into that setting was a bit risky, but it's, it's working for us. And we end our story with the 13th Amendment. And in 1864, again, most everyone uh, today would, would think, well, Lincoln would have been easily reelected, no problem. Well, we, you know, uh, it's certainly uh, common knowledge to many that uh, in, in the summer of 1864, Lincoln was convinced and most of his political operatives were convinced he was going to lose the election because of his stand on emancipation. And he made a decision in this place when his political operatives came in August 1864 and said, Mr. Lincoln, drop your commitment to the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery or you will lose Ohio, Pennsylvania, and you'll lose the election. And for a few days in this building, he walked these floors and thought, you know, maybe they're right. I can't do anything if I'm not president. But at the end of the day, he rejected that advice, stood by the 13th Amendment, and was, was re-elected. Uh, a very courageous decision by, by, by all counts. So in, I guess in, in summary, maybe we'll have some questions later, I don't know. Uh, I wanted to share with you today that you know, the theme is attracting new audiences, and we certainly, by bringing media, making the tour comfortable, uh, setting up a conversation where ideas can be exchanged, I think our word-of-mouth advertising is very good. We're, we're running on a very, very tight budget, and word-of-mouth is essential for our visitation. Absolutely, we can't compete in the D.C. market in paid advertising. We charge $12. You can go see a lot of great historical museums in D.C. free. Uh, but to come out to this place, which is slightly remote, it's in kind of a part of town that a lot of tourists are not familiar with, or even D.C.ers, and pay money... To hear that, hey, Lincoln thought, what? That was um, sort of a unique situation, I think. But very uh, proud of the staff for the way that they have uh, stuck by the plan, if you will. Uh, we've, we've massaged it and adjusted it as we go along, but we've really stuck by our original plan and uh, kept the numbers small in the story, uh, as we believe it today, to be true. So questions now, later? Why don't we wait? So again, I apologize uh, for this, but in a way I kind of maybe made it a better, better presentation by uh, not burdening you with a lot of images. Well, thank you. Thank you, Frank. Uh, you dance very well. Okay, let's find Marsh's. I had it up here, but... Yeah, here it is. There we go. All right, Marsha Mellon from the Hermitage. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here to talk a little bit about the Hermitage and Andrew Jackson. I'm going to uh, give you a little background of our interpretation planning and... Um, describe the new themes that we've come up with and how we're interpreting them and then look a little bit at the early results and uh, the future. The Hermitage, as Eric said, is the home and plantation of President Andrew Jackson. He moved to the property in 1804 and lived there until he died in 1845. Uh, it's a National Historic Landmark owned by the state of Tennessee and managed by the Ladies Hermitage Association. And we have been open for tours since 1889. 
So this picture of these nice people in the late 1940s was sort of our midpoint in our history. Um, everyone in Tennessee comes to the Hermitage on a field trip in the fourth grade. Very few come back after. Almost everyone else in the middle part of the United States comes on a family vacation, or it seems like that. In other words, most of the Hermitage visitors come once, or they come at very long intervals. About the only people who seem to come on a more regular basis are those people in Nashville for whom the Hermitage is on their regular route for out-of-town guests. And sometimes they bring them, dump them off, and go away. Um, luckily, new kids come on field trips. Um, pa families still take vacations, and there are always bored relatives. So people do come to the Hermitage still, but as options have increased for entertainment in the Nashville area, um, visitation has dropped. Today we get about 170,000 visitors annually. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, during the American Revolution bicentennial era and um, two huge tourism promotions by the state of Tennessee, the attendance was much higher at about 300,000. By the early 90s, that began to wear off. In the late 1990s, our local um, theme park, Opryland, closed, and the CVB began to do more of its marketing uh, to business travelers rather than family vacationers. And then the Hermitage had a tornado in April of 18, or 1998 and uh, destroyed a lot of the landscape and led a lot of people to have the idea that we weren't quite open for business as usual. And in this decade, uh, visitation patterns continue to change for historic sites. Our audiences have changed and what they're looking for has changed. So we needed to reinvent our audience and diversify them in terms of age and ethnicity. Uh, you can pretty well predict a lot of our audience is over 50 or they have very young children. Uh, we don't get many families with teenagers. Uh, we wanted to attract more visitors from the local community. Until very recently, most of our visitation was from outside of the state of Tennessee. Less than 20% were Tennesseans, and that included all the kids that came on field trips. Um, finally, and possibly most importantly, we had to strengthen our relationship with the local community. We could not continue to be just a revenue-based operation uh, like the proverbial three-legged stool where the institution relies on gifts or grants or endowment. Relying on um, your revenue from your visitors is just one leg too, and it's not, it has its own pitfalls. So today, the site covers 1,120 acres. Uh, we have um, Jackson's home, of course. We also have the garden, his tomb and family cemetery, uh, three standing slave cabins, several other outbuildings. We also have um, Tulip Grove Mansion, which is the home of his nephew and protege, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, and the Hermitage Church, which was built in 1823. In addition to the sites that we have on property, we have nearly all of the original furnishings of the Hermitage Mansion. The pieces and things that Jackson and his family actually owned and used. 
We have um, 1,200 items from the family library, and we have over 800,000 archaeological artifacts. Although we have these rich resources, one of our major challenges is to convey to potential visitors that we are not just a house and that we have many, many stories to tell. So several years ago, we began an interpretive planning process, funded in part by grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And initially, we wanted to do four things. We wanted to wisely use this 1,120 acres, which is a lot of property, in the middle of the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we wanted to develop a historic landscape use plan so that we could wisely use more of the property. We wanted to tell the story of the enslaved community, and we wanted to increase the involvement of the local community. And so we convened the typical NEH panel of outside experts, scholars, and museum people, and uh, began to develop topics and themes and explore potential means of interpretation. For years, the interpretation at the Hermitage had focused completely on Jackson's military and presidential biography, as well as family stories. Just as Frank was talking about Abe and Mary, our visitors wanted to hear about Andy and Rachel and him marrying her twice and the sad story of the election of 1828. We used very little contextual information and we realized as we were going through planning that context was the biggest story that we weren't telling. Most of our visitors don't have a very strong understanding of American <coughs> history and they have a very weak understanding of the early 19th century of American history. And so they knew about Andrew Jackson. He was the evil killer of Indians, but they didn't know anything about how he fit into the big story. And as we went through the planning, we decided that the Hermitage itself can tell a large part of this early 19th century American story. We have so many resources and so much property and so many parts of the story affected directly this particular place that we can tell the story of Jacksonian America, or as the teachers have begun to call it, Era 4, <laughs> in the standards. There are 10 eras in American history. 1801 to 1861 is Era 4. We can help our audience understand not only why Andrew Jackson was important, but how the United States developed. The scholar panel added a lot of rich thoughts to the material that we had been thinking about, and relevance to today's issues became apparent. As John Meacham says in the foreword of his recent Jackson biography, American Lion, to understand Jackson and his time helps us understand America's perennially competing impulses. Jackson's life and work and the nation he protected and preserved were shaped by the struggle between grace and rage, generosity and violence, justice and cruelty. So we selected six themes to interpret the Hermitage, and I'll go through these. Uh, the first is growing democracy, which covers the transition from the Republican government envisioned by the founders to the more democratic government that was emerging during Jackson's era. And um, also looking a little at the areas where 
democracy did not grow for women, Indians, and African Americans. We have political cartoons, Jackson's ideas, uh, the elections of 1824 and 28 to tell this story. The second and probably equally important story for us is slavery in the cotton economy. Jackson owned 150 slaves at the end of his life. He was the largest agricultural slave owner in Davidson County, Tennessee. He was exceeded only by a man named Montgomery Bell, who owned slaves to iron, mine and process iron. Um, it, cotton was his cash crop, and the growing importance of cotton, which led to the Industrial Revolution and encouraged the entrenchment of slavery, it is a huge story for us. And so we can talk about Jackson, his attitudes towards slavery and the management of his slaves. People like the overseer who usually left out completely in um, plantation histories. Um, and the Hermitage has been a leader in the archaeology of slavery, which has given us this huge number of archaeological resources and the interpretation of those resources that have given us more information about the enslaved community. Indians and westward expansion, and I have to tell you that for most people, and our vis both amongst our visitors and our staff, this is probably the hardest story. It's harder than slavery, because most people think of Jackson as the perpetrator of the Trail of Tears and the murderer of Indians. And uh, this puts him in a very bad light, and and in fact, many teachers, when they zip through the Jacksonian era in their school books, the Trail of Tears is the only thing they talk about. So um, the whole push westward, Jackson being the, only, the first American president from beyond the Appalachian Mountains and um, not from the 13 original colonies, uh, the Creek War, the Trail of Tears, his role in those events, and then the opposite and contradictory sides uh, Jackson, who adopted an Indian child. So uh, then our third story, which was inspired by owning a church and not really knowing what to do with it, um, <laughs> we talk about reform in religion. Religion was a huge influence both in the Jackson family's lives and in America in the early 19th century. It was the time of the Second Great Awakening, all these new denominations were springing up. Protestantism uh, was being greatly influenced by the democratic wave in politics. And so it, it, it's a great story. And then temperance, abolitionism, women's rights, all things that the Jackson family encountered or dealt with um, are, grew out of that changing feelings about religion. And our final two stories are the changing roles of women. Uh, in addition to Jackson, we have three great lead female characters at our site. We have Rachel Jackson, his wife, who came west with her father on a flatboat in 1780 when she was 12 years old. And his daughter-in-law, Sarah, who grew up Quaker in Philadelphia and um, adapted to being the life of a slave owner very well. And Emily Donaldson, his niece and White House hostess, who uh, participated very strongly in what Catherine Algor calls parlor politics in Washington when she got embroiled in the Peggy Eaton affair. 
And in contrast, we have the stories of the enslaved women who worked in the fields and took care of the Jackson family. And then our final theme is creating an American culture, which is the material culture, the architecture, art, decorative arts, and literature uh, as they move to distinctive American forms. In addition to the themes, we also came up with four big ideas that we wanted to um, kind of have as an as umbrella over all these themes. That the Hermitage offers unique examples of life in Jacksonian era. I mean, this is not how the common family lived. Um, that's Connor Prairie. <laughs> the Jacksonian era was very critical to the development of the nation. We wanted to get across the thought that history is a dynamic process of inquiry. History does not stay the same. And that through active participation, people can affect change. We don't enumerate these themes for our visitors the way you might in a gallery exhibit. They primarily serve as guideposts for the staff in thinking about programming, um, interpretation, and the big picture that we need to keep focused on when the temptation comes along to tell endless Andrew and Rachel love stories. <laughs> the interpretive process we embarked on was mostly about uh, content and delivery, but uh, we also did some visitor uh, surveys as we began this process because as with, without good visitor experiences, uh, the guests won't enjoy themselves and all of our carefully crafted interpretations will not go anywhere. So we participated in ASLH's performance management program. Uh, we did focus groups and uh, did some surveys on site. And we found as part of performance management that... Um, Seven factors influenced about almost 80% of our visitors as to whether they had a positive or negative experience. And as you see, none of those are really the stories, um, but except for the first one, impact. They want to know if, they have a, if their visit has a positive or negative impact on them, whether they perceive it as a good value, whether the staff um, treats them well, uh, they honor the fact that we've been around for a long time, uh, how their interpreter deals with these subjects, uh, the activities, the animals, the costumes, the kind of entertainment factor of the tour, and whether they found it enjoyable for children. And it was interesting. Um, we found out that um, many people weren't being strongly impacted by their visit they, they were having a good time, and they would recommend the Hermitage, but, but Andrew and Rachel love stories were not affecting them in any deep way, and they didn't find us particularly uh, enjoyable for children. So by interpreting these themes, we can affect people in a lot of different ways. We can reach more kinds of people, more people with more interests, and uh, people of different ages, races, backgrounds. So some of the things we did to in, uh, add to our interpretation, because primarily what had happened before was you came, you bought your ticket, and you went on a house tour. 
we have a visitor center with that had a film, and it was basically Jackson biography, and uh, as was the museum in the visitor center. So we added digital signage to the ticket office to um, help tell more about what was available on the property and be able to change things uh, more quickly. We did a new film, which is more about issues than Jackson biography, and uh, there's one mention of Rachel in it, and we've been called out on that. People don't like it. Um, we added a new interactive map and a new on-site brochure, both to help people realize all the different opportunities there are on site and things to do and things to see so that they don't think that they're paying, because we do charge admission, uh, for just a tour of the house, and that's all. We've done a lot more interpretation of the slave cabins. Um, we've uh, marked out several of the slave cabins that have been identified as archaeological sites, and we've done interpretation inside and outside of the standing slave cabins. Uh, we've helped basically let the museum exhibit tell the chronological story of Jackson's life, where he was born, where what he did, you know, the step-by-step -step process. And we've also extended it to tell the history of the Hermitage site after the Jacksons left. Uh, we have added more wayside exhibits. Our, we had about 18 wayside exhibits, and we've added about 14 more, so we have a total of about 32 and um, covering different aspects of the property. And one thing, place that the themes have really been a good influence for the staff is to look at our programming. Um, we were not very program intensive, and we're still not very program intensive, um, because our visitor base were these one-time visitors. Why do you have to do a program for somebody who's going to come once? They're not going to know you do the same thing over and over again every day. Um, and we're slowly working toward changing that thinking. The mansion interpretation uh, became much stronger in terms of telling more about Jackson's life and career as opposed to this is the bedroom and this is the bed where he died. And um, how the objects in the house reflect his life and career. And although we have just finished some parts of this process um, and have not done any big visitor surveys or, or uh, experience or studies of the interpretation, we do have anecdotal evidence that people are beginning to find that these programs and the interpretations are making a difference. Uh, as we've begun to tell more stories, we've seen a broader audience Visitors stay on the property longer, which means they're finding the experience more engaging. Uh, and they seem more enthusiastic when they uh, get to the end of their visit. One of the things we added was an audio tour of the grounds, which had not been interpreted very well. <clears throat> and um, the children's version is narrated by Jackson's parrot, Paul, who is a real creature was a real creature. One of the scholars said at our planning meetings that the best outcome for our interpretation was 
that there would be a lively discussion in the car as the visitors went home or around the dinner table that night. Of course, that's a hard effect to measure, but one result of that is is if they have a good experience, they'll probably tell other people that they had a good experience. And uh, word of mouth is a great marketing tool. We've had other benefits. Uh, We've worked with Middle Tennessee State University on teachers' workshops using the themes to interpret the Hermitage and the Jacksonian era. We convinced the Park Service of our sincerity in interpreting the Indian uh, story and have become a member of the Trail of Tears National Historic Trail. And we helped work on a Jackson documentary that was on PBS um, and worked with many of the same scholars on that as we did the, um, our own interpretive planning and thereby cemented more of our relationship with people other than Jackson biographers of that era. We don't know what the future of interpretation is at the Hermitage. It seems like all these things are changing so quickly that uh, what was a great, wonderful new idea last year is sort of boring an old hat next year. But we are embarking on a new strategic plan this fall, and we know that interpretation, expanding our stories, and expanding the way we tell those stories is going to be a very important part of that strategic plan. And we know we're going to be taking more ways to find fresh approaches at this old historic site. pop it and it'll go forward. All right. Our, our final presenter is Bob Waltz from uh, Truman's Little White House in Key West. Good morning. We have probably the strangest site of all of them. <laughs> and I don't say that irreverently because obviously you're going to find out I love this site beyond belief, love this site. Um, the Little White House has been designated a state historic landmark Governor Bob Graham once said it was the most important property in South Florida. We are a 9,000-square-foot historic house. uh, 500 square feet of that is devoted to museum store, 1,000 feet to guest rooms where the President of the United States is welcome to stay, and they do. Uh, 1,000, I mean, sorry, uh, 500 square feet is devoted to my office, so that's total administration. And about 6,000 is historic period rooms. We are about 80 to 90%, depending on the room, original furnishings purchased for President Truman. The property was always owned by the United States government until 1974. Uh, In 74, the Navy base was closed. Some of you are from Navy communities. It's called BRAC, Base Realignment. And for 12 years, we were an abandoned site subject to all the opportunities of abandonment. Roofs leaked, ceilings fell in, vandals broke in and stole things, and at one point the homeless set fire to the house. Uh, It then was sold by the United States government to a private developer for a period of about three months, 
and the governor, Bob Graham, twisted his arm, and we became owned by the governor and cabinet of Florida. Having said that, you would think all of our money issues are solved. As soon as they took possession, they informed us, now that we own you, fend for yourselves. And so we have been challenged twice to raise a million dollars for the restoration. Most recently, this May, was the rededication again. So why are we important? Well, by the way, there is the outside of the house. Uh, we are sitting on an acre of botanical gardens in downtown Key West. There is a great benefit to being in a tourist destination. Huge benefit. Oh, who are we? Well, I guess I told you that. Why visit us? Well, we're going to go into that in just a moment. And are we relevant to today? This is a period photograph. We have about 10,000 period photographs. The United States uh, government, as I say, built the house in 1890 as the first officer's quarters. It was used during the Spanish-American War when we went to Puerto Rico and we went to Cuba. In World War I, scientist Edward Hayden was in residence doing research on, on uh, weather, followed by inventor Thomas Edison, who lived there six months and invented 41 weapons. And that's our military side. We are mid-century contemporary. As I mentioned, the house looks like your mom's or your grandmother's house. A lot of people look at it and say, gee, my mom had this table. Uh, well, that's right. The neat thing is, there it is in 1946. There it is in 2009. We've completed recently um, paint analysis. Thank God nobody ever sanded the walls since 1890. We identified every layer of paint. The fabrics were found. The paintings on the wall are copies of the originals. It's a very, very pure restoration. President Truman, by the way, there's some of his stewards in the dining room in 1949, and there's that same dining room today. Uh, the, the neat thing is that President Truman came because he had a cold, at least that's ostensibly why he came, and he used it like Camp David. He ran away for a week to the warm weather. And he fell madly in love with the place and promised, whenever I get tired, I'll be back. And so 12 weeks later, he was back. <laughs> and that set a precedent. Every November, December, and every February and March, the President of the United States chose Key West as his winter White House. There is the place where the emergence of the modern presidency occurs, the response to the Cold War, the conversion from wartime to peacetime economy, and while when I came, just 10 years ago, when I came, everyone's belief was, oh, yeah, the president goofed off in Key West. He laid around on the beach drinking bourbon and didn't do a thing. And then, fortunately for us, the library is a great partner of ours. We ran across a letter to his cousin, Ethel Newland, that said, the work of the president never ends. It just follows you no matter where you go. I'm signing my name 200 to 600 times a day. We had a few later presidents use us. Oh, by the way, there's, there's Harry Truman off on a morning stroll. He started his morning with a glass of orange juice and a shot of bourbon. He had a heart condition. His doctor told him he'd live for 20 years if he did that. He did it. But then we had later presidents. 
There's Dwight Eisenhower. He came for three weeks. President Kennedy was there 23 days before the Bay of Pigs, and that's British Prime Minister Harold McMillan. Past presidents Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton have come and been house guests. In 2001, Colin Powell chose us as a site for international peace talks with the governments of Azerbaijan and Armenia. So we are a, a relevant site. We're kind of a weird mix out here. Um, our mission is to preserve and protect the building and grounds, to accumulate and disseminate information on the American presidency, and to keep us a current living museum. We're not frozen to a single moment of time, and that does make us very unique. Even though we're looking like 1949, the President of the United States could be there. Don Hewitt, the founder of 60 Minutes, Minutes uh, gave us our daily venue, Tell Me a Story. That's what we do. We offer 60-minute guided tours every 15 to 20 minutes throughout the day. Now, obviously, in the summer, it's a little further apart. In the winter, we get about 400 visitors a day, so we hit about somewhere between 55,000 and 65,000, depending on the year. We have extremely limited uh, exhibit space, and for the most part, our artifacts are recent acquisitions, and so we use a lot of photographic archive. I don't know how many of you do that. Thank God for Office Max and things. You can get a great big picture for like 30 bucks now. So we do a lot of photographic archiving and then tie a picture to it. But then we said, what else do we need to do? We need to expand the story. We need to broaden this base. And I am very happy to say we get lots of repeat visitors. They come every two or three years and they go, oh, I was here and they come back because they hear a different story because while the docents have a framework, a skeleton, we allow them to flesh out the stories. And so one loves furniture and talks about furniture. One loves you know, artifacts and talks about the artifacts. Somebody else loves Harry Truman's love stories to his wife, Bess. And so all these different facets of this person emerge. And then there's, of course, a new president drops in. We've got to add him to the story as well. So it's always expanding. But in 2003, we had embarked on this restoration, and we said, okay, we know we're going to restore the house, but how do we expand the story? And so Dr. Watson and Dr. Devine and I got together and created what is known as the Truman Legacy Symposium, and it has its own website, trumansymposium.com, a permanent website. And this is an educational conference. By the way, I gave you our brochure, too. This is one of the many things we did. We branded. The blue brochure is our attraction to get people in the door brochure. The red brochure is our foundation brochure. And the website matches all of them. And we have a 1,000-page website. So we're, we're constantly going after uh, a, a broadening base. So we formed a partnership. The Truman Little White House, the Truman Presidential Library, 1,500 miles away. Uh, the community college, about seven miles from my door, and Florida Atlantic University, halfway up the state of Florida. Not exactly your closest neighbors, but we have a common goal. We, the first issue that we decided to take on was national security. And we said, how are we going to do it? Well, the way we did it 
was we had a one-hour reception at the, well, maybe two hours reception at the Little White House on a Friday night, and the visitors get to come see the house. They get a sense of place. They get to understand how the president used it and lived there and enjoyed himself. And then we move either to the college or to a conference center for about six hours of concentrated learning the next day. There are three of President Truman's staff still living, all in their 90s. One of them, bless his heart, attends every year and gives us incredible insight. He's so sharp at this age. We pick a big name. How are you going to get an audience? Well, you, we're like everybody else. We want star quality. In this case, we did it on national security, so we picked General Brent Scrocroft, national security advisor under Presidents Ford, Reagan, and Bush. Uh, the next one, I think, is a very neat picture. Whoops. I'm, well, that is Carl Lewis. He is kind of a big guy. Um, this is our conference on civil rights, which was the second one. But this is a neat picture. We have Ken Heckler, Truman Staffer, former Governor Michael Dukakis. The guys in red are the Tuskegee Airmen that were the first black pilots. In the middle is Congressman John Lewis, who marched with Dr. King. And on the end are two of Truman's grandsons. So the family is tying into us as well. And it kind of brings in some crowds. We, we were lucky enough to do a program on the environment. And Ken Heckler said, we never had an environmental pro uh, program. That's something brand new. The terminology is brand new. The thinking is very old. President Truman certainly had an environmental uh, policy. By the way, he created the Everglades National Park, which was a natu natural tie for us. But that year, we brought Michael Grunwald, the author that wrote The Swamp, and Christine Todd Whitman, former head of EPA. We did a program on Native Americans. <laughs> you were saying Native Americans. They said Truman didn't have a Native American policy. And whoops, did I step on the wire and lose us? Keep talking. Keep talking. <laughs> okay. Well, our program on Native Americans, we brought Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, and we brought the uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Ada Deer. We did a program on Israel. Truman recognized Israel 14 minutes after they declared their independence. And ironically, I, I like to say we're the tipping point or the first domino. Uh, Truman's Jewish business partner called Truman at the Little White House and begged him to recognize Israel. Truman declined. So what did his partner do? He got on the train and cut him off at the pass. He met him in Washington and ran into the White House begging and crying, and Truman agreed to recognize Israel, or at least at that moment to recognize uh, Dr. Kaim Weissman. So we're the first domino. Speaking of first dominoes, we know at the desk in the living room, President Truman got into a slight disagreement and wrote a letter to one of his commanders that said, don't do anything for the next two weeks in Korea. That's a bad paraphrase, but that's, that's basically what it was. And of course, General MacArthur took the letter and immediately ran to the press and said, I'm going to attack China, which led to his firing. So the first domino hats happens at the Little White House. So it's kind of important in the course of world history after all. This year, we were very, very honored to have uh, Don Ritchie, who is the Senate historian, as our chair for our conference, and we did it on the presidency and the Congress, and for the very first time, C-SPAN carried our conference. 
So we were very excited about that. We've had PBS radio cover it in the past. But what I'm saying, <laughs> I guess we lost our slides. The neat thing is this doesn't end just with a forum, with a conference. We took it to the next logical step and said this knowledge needs to be put out there for historians, for researchers. And so the symposium partnership has a book deal with Truman State University Press, and they publish our, our books every year. Usually we're a couple years behind, but they have released four so far on national security, on Israel, on civil rights, and, and I'm going to embarrass them. Um, my good friend Ray Gesselbrock from Truman Library edited the book on civil rights. He's here with us today, so I'm, he's came to give me moral support, I'm sure. But uh, it, it nevertheless is putting new research out there so it's not old. It, it's, it's constantly bringing people back to our president and to our site. And uh, we, we, you know, as I say, we seem to be doing the right things. Because of all this, I'm happy to say the Truman Legacy Symposium was awarded an award of merit from AALSH two years ago. So it's, it shows that it's a new approach to, to scholarship. And so I would encourage you. I know we've got a unique site. Your site can do the same thing. Form those partnerships with the community college, with the schools, with, with, with scholars in your field. Uh, there, there's always an opportunity knocking at the door, and, and you're absolutely right, uh, Marsha. We don't know what the next one's going to be. They, they inform me I'm not allowed to do the Twitter of our, corporate, of our museum because I can't say anything in 140 characters, which is okay. But they did stick me with the Facebook and with the blog section, which I'm very bad about because I just don't do things. But we, uh, I, we try. We, we put it up. And, and our site is, is a neat military site. We just had two reenlistments, and they appeared on the site. So all their families are looking at, hey, look, you know, there's Uncle John at the Little White House. So uh, I, I welcome your questions, but thank you for uh, your attention. Um, okay, we've got uh, some time for questions. Would anybody like to direct them at one of our panelists? Here's one here. On, on the Truman Little White House, I'm interested. You said that, that right after the governor took you over, he told you you were on your own. So how do you stay funded? Do you charge and or, or do you have uh, financial relationships with some of your partners? Or, uh, or? A, yes, we definitely charge. I, I, I was sharing with some of our panel earlier over the course of, of 20, well, 19 years that we've been open, we, we started at $6 and lost 50 grand a year. We went to $8, we went to $10, we went to $12, and the number one complaint was, you're owned by the federal government, which we're not, you're owned by the federal government, you should be free. Here's my National Park Pass. You don't get in for the National Park Pass. Second thing, you're owned by the governor of Florida, you should be paid for by the state, we shouldn't give you any money. So, you know, it's, it's been an ongoing battle. Last year, I said to our staff, because we discussed, in my case, our electric bill is about $4,000 a month for air conditioning. So we, we, I have a $750,000 budget a year, all of which 600000 is coming from Gate, 150000 is coming from Gift Shop. And Gift Shop right now is dropping, but Gate, thank God, is going up. So 
So I, I very boldly said, that's it. Hemingway House is six blocks down the street from us. They're $12, we were $12. Mel Fisher's Treasure Museum was $12. I said, we're going to 15 and I'm giving a senior citizen price of 13. All the bitching stopped. It's like a shock. We're making more money and all the seniors are thrilled to death. I gave them a $2 discount. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I passed that word on. I don't know that it'll work in every site, but it did in ours. And uh, obviously we get zillions of school children, cheap, cheap, cheap. I mean, we're like two bucks for kids, you know, to get them through the door. And uh, we have scout groups and church groups and all this at $5. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're really trying our best to expand that market. But, yes, we are self-supporting. And uh, Mike Devine, my dear, dear friend, he sits on my board, uh, informed me the first million was the hardest. And this, six years later, the millionth dollar came in this May, so I was like dancing on the roof and going, okay, the rest is going to be easy. I went, oh, no, we lied. So I'm sure it's not going to be easy, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're and, and I'll tell you this, the state gave us 184, 184,000, the county gave me 175,000, and all the rest of it has been $50 and $100, and you know. So if you don't, don't think, well, you've got a big name, you can pull big dollars, they weren't $50,000 gifts, they were $100 gifts and $500 gifts, and, and I, I'm very thankful for every single one of them. I hope that answered it. <laughs> yes, it did. Thank you. Other questions? Over here. Frank, at Lincoln Cottage, do you have a demographic study of your visitors? Do you know? No, we don't. Do uh, you have some sense of uh, getting highly educated? Or? Yeah, that's a, that's a really pertinent question for us. And we went into this thinking. Uh, that we would have a, uh, you know, the cultural, the, the seasoned cultural tourist, uh, perhaps more educated, a higher education level than the average mall goer. You know, we didn't base that on any studies. Uh, our observation is that that was an accurate uh, expectation. Uh, but uh, we need to move more into more analytical. We're not really a very uh, kid-friendly site. I mean, you know, if you go to our website, I forget what wording we actually settled on. It bounced around a little bit, but something like this site is not uh, especially appropriate for children under eight years of age or something like that. Uh, it is an exercise in intellectual interpretation, and like <coughs> technical interpretation, you can bore people to tears really quickly. Uh, I've done both. and talking about how an eight-cylinder engine works can bore people as quickly as Lincoln's ideas if you're not good at it. Uh, so we do, we do school programs, etc. but uh, it, it really is a, uh, not a site that's really fine-tuned to the young family. That being said, we're a great place to go for visiting friends and relatives. Those VFRs in D.C., which is a huge market, you can come to our place, you can park for free, you can picnic in the shade, uh, it's 8 to 10 degrees cooler than the mall, which is why Lincoln went there in the first place. Uh, there's always, almost always a breeze. Uh, it's kind of a nice, comfortable experience where you can sit in an air-conditioned, although it's, the air temperature is not you know, 67 or anything. So it, it, it's, not a, it's a good place for families. Uh, it's just not that uh, hands-on. There should be museums for adults. <laughs> Our director of development actually agrees with you, but our director of education doesn't. So there you go. Next question. 
on the Jackson, the Hermitage, um, as you changed your interpretation from the love stories to the, in the biography to the to these broader ten themes, did you have uh, objections or pushback from staff or volunteers? Did, did they were they part of the problem or? No, the staff. Um, well. <laughs> Uh, our interpreters are very independent lot. They're paid, but they're still independent. Um, <laughs> I know that <laughs> And uh, they still have opportunities to talk about those things. But we try to emphasize that they need to keep on the big picture. Um, most of our pushback comes from the visitors who, and and they are the ones who are still, you know, channeling Charlton Heston and Susan Hayward. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the fact that we tell more stories, I think, entices a lot more people than it, the negative of the few people who wish we'd go back to the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. So has your visitorship increased? It's been very steady for the last few years, which is a huge change from constant dropping. Um, one factor that I didn't mention as far as tourism is the fact that Jackson is just not a very popular guy anymore. He used to be considered, you know, the hero of New Orleans and uh, was second only probably to George Washington in honors and, and uh, adulation. But... Um, the whole Indian thing has really uh, marred his reputation. And, you know, it, he wasn't doing very nice things. And um, the fact that he was a slave owner. So we felt that we had to confront those things directly. And our, our visitors appreciate it. Marsha, as a Canadian, I, I'm, I'm one who'd like to see a resurgence in War of 1812 story. <laughs> you and Myers Brand need to get together. Yeah. <laughs> so, Go ahead. So, I guess this is um, for both of you. So, you, you have um, exhibits now about all those themes you showed us? No. Our exhibits in the museum uh, are generally, it's generally a chronological story of the site, Jackson. Jackson's biography, the family story, who these characters are, uh, sort of the timeline, just to give visitors some context for the, the big picture. And um, so we don't demarcate the themes for the visitors. The themes are for us, to help us keep on track of telling uh, a bigger picture story. Um, I'm sure our visitors, when they walk away, couldn't tell you, oh yeah, these are the six things they cover. And we don't care that, about that. We want to cover things for people. We want people to find something to be interested in. And if they're only interested in the slave story, if they're only interested in agriculture, if they're only interested in um, women, that's fine. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned from these symposiums that you've published them and that I, I would assume that your docents and your tour guides, I guess they're paid, so your tour guides are learning more as they're attending the symposium, but I was wondering what other ways do you use 
like how how else do you interpret this? Like, do you have exhibits? And well, you... as I pointed out, we have a very small exhibit spot okay. space, and it's it's constantly changing. It seems it's every few months, and it's all temporary exhibit space. Um, there's, for example, obviously last year was a major campaign year. One of the neat things that we pointed out was, and every candidate on both parties was quoting Harry Truman. Well, we explained how the Electoral College works, and then we put together an exhibit of all of the campaign buttons for both Obama and McCain, pro and con. I mean, and they're funny. I mean, there's some things that you go, I can't believe that button's out there. Well, guess what? And then we brought in all the third-party candidates. Now, why am I doing that? Because 50 years from now, those will be antiques for the museum. Uh, we have a Palm Beach voting machine. Boy, the second the, the, 2000, the, second the 2000 election occurred, I went out and bought the, vote, the, the voting box and, and ballots, and, and everybody came in to go dimple chads and the whole night. I mean, they had great fun with it. And, and why? Because it's the story of the presidency. And who am I to say who's the next president? Uh, last year, I was installing brand new HVAC. It was 96 degrees in my office for, for 59 days. And President Bush calls and wants to have a summit meeting there with the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of Mexico. He didn't come. <laughs> but, but that's not to say he won't come. So it's important that I have George Bush stuff and I have Obama stuff. And it, you know, they, sooner or later, they all come. I mean, that's, it's kind of a, it's an exciting thing, but it's, it's also nerve-wracking because it shuts down the museum. Um, we're attempting to build a visitor center that will allow us permanent display space that can tell this huge story. This is a big story that we're trying to tell in an hour. The question in the back. How does the symposium fit into your budget? How is it? It, it is separate from our operations budget. It is normally, it's done on a shoestring. It, it's, it, we're, we're only spending about 20000 The most expensive one we ever had was the one on Israel, which bordered on almost $50,000 because we're providing meals. So the participants are paying a hundred and a quarter. The, as, as Ray would tell you, the, we, it's an advantage to being in a, a resort. I can say to a famous person, we don't have any money, but we'll let you come to Key West for a weekend, and we'll give you a hotel ticket, I mean a hotel room and a ticket, and a couple thousand dollars, will you come? And instead of getting the twenty thousand they might normally get, they'll settle for the two. So, um, but I mean, we're pulling some some big names. I mean, honestly, we're pulling major people. Uh, but anyway, it 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 never's made any money. If that's the question, it, 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 and the books, they're for the sake of knowledge. I mean, my thirty dollar, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, Royalty check. You will not buy lunch for me. So uh, <laughs> it's not to make money, that's for sure. Yes. So, Frank, how do you handle CA trip and uh, Lincoln sleeping with a soldier? <laughs> uh, it's, you know, that doesn't surface as frequently as I expected it to. Right. Yeah. Uh, we don't carry his, his book in the, in the shop. Uh, we talk about his relationships with. Uh, with men, and again, that being typical mid 19th century America. Uh, but you always get the you know you get the questions that you know you know where the visitor wants you to go, and if you don't go there, they don't oftentimes push it too much. But uh, 
Yeah, I was kind of surprised that it doesn't come up as, as frequently as... Now, we don't have any beds. Maybe if we had beds up there, <laughs> <laughs> that might be sort of prompt some questions. This, if I might just throw it out, I was just thinking that this, this idea of comfort uh, history, I'm just wondering if that acts. I see a couple other folks that were in the session earlier today. If any of you in your sites, uh, you know, come up against issues where it's uncomfortable for you to interpret what you want to interpret, and if so, how you deal with that. do a house tour and we talk about a little girl who used to live there who um, who believed in fairies and she believed that fairies really did live in the gardens of the house and that she could talk to them and see them and she um, held on to this belief kind of into her adulthood and um, when we're dealing with family groups you get kids who say oh well are there really fairies there lot and you don't want to tell the kid no fairies aren't real <laughs> but she believed in them um, so we kind of just go along with well Elizabeth believed that she saw the fairies so why don't you look for yourself it's kind of a small example but it's a question that we get a lot is, or are there really fairies and you look at the parents and the parents are kind of like is this lady gonna tell my child that fairies aren't real or is or or encourage their belief exactly so not good for fostering family memberships right right so we just kind of let we let the kids decide for themselves we say well why don't you know why don't you tell me if you if you see them out there because so. i was just thinking between angola gay and you know the indian issue and man, there's some real common mm -hmm. issues here that go beyond comfort yeah and that's true with just about any president or any house museum We wanted to do an exhibit in, in our um, revolving room on the whole issue of slaves in the Cayman Islands, and you know, you just saw the faces drop on <laughs> go. <laughs> so we had to can the idea. But what we do have um, are two photographs of women who were descendants, direct descendants of slaves, um, who were the working family, of, came from the same family, and the workers of the house. So we have placed their photographs in various rooms so that we are allowed to talk about them and their contributions. Um, so that in hopes that eventually we can work our way to that exhibit on slaves by getting people used to the idea of hearing about um, the people who work there, but not focusing it on them um, as a major part of it. So it's kind of trying to get people up to, you know, building up to it. Well, I think as all of our speakers have said, you, it's important to meet these controversial, controversial issues head on. At the Wilson Boyhood Home, uh, of course, Wilson does, didn't have a great record with women. So we talk about that, but we also try to point out that he had great relationships with a lot of women, beginning with his mother and sisters and moving forward. Or with, with he didn't have a great record with uh, 
with blacks and uh, in his house he, he grew up in the south with the house with with african-american servants uh, they were actually free blacks but we just talk about that head on and someone once said that if people need to see themselves in the history that they're experiencing or they won't feel a connection so if you don't bring these things up you're telling just the great white male story and so you've got to talk about all of that or people won't feel a connection. Do I see another hand starting to go up? Well, I was just going to say, I think that 